I'm Chris Biddle. Thank you for joining me. And this is episode 60 of Inside AgriTurf. The topic for the panel in this AgriTurf talk episode is how does the agricultural engineering industry across all its disciplines present its environmental credentials to young people and the wider world? There is little doubt that today's young people have a much greater awareness and social responsibility for the environment and for taking it upon themselves to make a difference. Agricultural engineering is a very broad church. To most, of course, it means tractors and combines, but it has a very long reach. Into soil science, water quality, horticulture, sports and recreation, forestry, food processing, renewable energy, robotics, and yeah, much, much more. Agricultural engineering also holds the key to unlocking the sustainable solutions for much that we take for granted. The food we produce, the countryside we treasure, and the sports and recreation facilities we enjoy. But there is a balance to be struck between a greening agenda and the ability to produce the food required to feed the nation. So the messaging to those we hope to attract into the industry is vitally important. And to help me explore all aspects of these, I've invited a panel that represents many of these areas of interest. Uh, If I could introduce them first, uh, Caroline Drummond, MBE, is Chief Executive of LEAF. That stands for Linking Environment and Farming. The leaf mark is a global assurance symbol recognizing sustainably farmed products and used by many leading supermarkets. And of course, the popular leaf open farm Sundays are set to resume in 2022. So, Caroline, welcome. And tell me, what are the plans looking like for the open farm Sundays to get back? Thank you very much, Chris. Well, they're looking good. Um, I have to say, not being defeated by COVID, we did run some online events through. 2020 and 21, uh, which were very well received. And actually, we had a live event last year. But uh, fingers crossed and touch wood, uh, this year is is going to be good. 12th of June, uh, so something for everybody's diary. And uh, we've already got 38 farmers registered to date and looking really encouraging. You know, I think the, the great thing about Open Farm Sunday, it's an opportunity for non-farmers to kind of really discover the story behind their food, what goes on out on farm, look at all the high tech, the machinery, and right through to how farmers are looking after the environment as well. Uh, Next up, uh, Charlie Nicklin. Charlie is uh, CEO of the Institution of Agricultural Engineers, IAGRI for short, which is also a licensed member of the Society for the Environment and able to offer professionally recognised qualifications to its members, such as charter environmentalists, registered environmentalists, and and, and so on. Uh, Charlie, do you you detect a growing interest amongst IAGRI members um, in gaining uh, SOCENV, as we call it, registration? Hi, Chris. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I would say it's been quite a slow burn in recent years. IAGRI was a founding member of the Society for the Environment back in 2004. And certainly back in 2004-05, we had a flurry of uh, registrations, many of whom were, were already members of IAGRI. Um, and then really in the last few years, we've probably had two or three new registrants each year. Um, often the registrations are from people outside uh, our normal sort of um, membership. 
Uh, Marion being a perfect example, working um, in the water industry. Um, I suppose given, given the amount of impact agriculture has on the environment, awareness of SOCM should be a lot higher than it, it perhaps is. And it does show there's a job to do there to make people more aware of what it is and what it does and its aims and that sort of thing. Well, you mentioned my next guest, uh, who is uh, Marion Perrett-Pearson, who's a uh, senior agricultural advisor to Seven Trent Water. Now, her role is to engage with farmers and landowners to manage land environmentally and reduce the runoff from pesticides, fertilizers and soils. And uh, as Charlie said, Marion is a member of the Institute of Agricultural Engineers. So, Marion, welcome. Tell me, in your visit, are you invited onto farms or, or can you uh, can you go along when you feel like it? Hi, Chris. Um, well, it kind of works both ways. So sometimes um, it's by invitation. So we, we phone up and make appointments. Um, other times I can drop in on most of the farmers I work with. Um, they always seem quite pleased to, to see me. I think that's because I bring schemes and money. I think is, <laughs> is oh, the, the best way to be invited onto a farm. <laughs> absolutely. Well, well, thank you for joining us today. And uh, to, to prove it's not all about agriculture, I'd like to welcome Chris Gibson, who runs uh, GGM Grounds Care, an award-winning dealership in the northwest of England, selling and servicing professional turf care and amenity machinery uh, with a growing emphasis on environmentally friendly products. Uh, Chris, I'm, I understand it, 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 it starts at home for you. you. You've made a number of environmentally mental changes within your business, haven't you? Yeah, that's right. I think it, we we, um, we we started really during COVID that we um, we had the opportunity to with uh, the local um, chamber of trade that they offered us an environmental audit in terms of what we what we were doing as a business, and we've always been interested in in that and trying to looking at the impact of our business on on the environment, and and very much so, so wanted to sort of look at putting our own house in order. So we did things like with solar on the roof, we've upgraded all the lighting here. Um, with a number of electric vehicles that we run across the fleet, and we're very, um, we still have a, a lot, a long way to go in terms of what we do in terms of reducing waste and, re- and recycling. Uh, but in terms, of, we thought that was certainly the right way to go in terms of setting that message out to our customers. And then on the back of that, we've we've also been trying to look for more and more environmentally friendly products, particularly in terms of the things that have of a battery electric nature that have that will that will hopefully mow grass professionally and commercially uh, in the future. Well, look, um, if I could go back to Caroline. Caroline, can you remind me, uh, Leaf is uh, 30 years old, 31 years old. Um, tell me what the origins, how how did it happen for, to you? Because obviously the environment was very important to you back in, if I can calculate it right, 1991. What was the trigger for the uh, launch of Leaf? Actually, we're part of a a pan-European project. So the real trigger was a project that started off in Germany, uh, Feudgemeinschaft Intercliff Franzenbaum, my only bit of German. Uh, And um, it was to reposition agriculture in the minds of the general public with funding from the European Crop Protection Association for three years. And joining us, we were the second project, was France, Germany, Sweden, Luxembourg, Spain, the Netherlands, and Austria. And um, I was a lecturer. In fact, I was a, a crops lecturer and a and, uh, machinery lecturer. I uh, did cultivations in particular at uh, Shuttleworth Agriculture College and saw the job. But I was 
interested in ensuring this was not just a PR job for farming. This had to be grounded on the balance of productive agriculture along good environmental aspects, which was exactly what the Germans were doing. So the starting point was very much based around a whole farm approach, site-specific called integrated farm management, which to this day uh, is the framework that holds true to our values and what we deliver. It's a more circular agriculture. It meets the outcomes that are being looked at through regenerative agricultural approaches. It's, it touches nature-based solutions and it touches agroecological solutions. So the grounding uh, was to set up a network of demonstration farms, partly for the public, but actually also to inspire farmers because you know we came through the 80s in a focused agriculture that was all about production. And um, we have seen, you know, our biodiversity reduce. I mean, I, I think since 1970, there are 40 million less birds in the UK skies, which is really quite scary. So the importance of us as an industry addressing environmental aspects, be they biodiversity and straight nature, or be they in the more refined area of ensuring that our soil is healthier and, you know, it's not just the chemical and the physical aspects, but it's the biological aspects. Our water is working for us and our air quality is improved. So I think um, that was, the, that, you know, that was a really big starting point for us. Um, and we had a board and over the years we have grown as an organisation and have a fantastic network of can-do demonstration farmers and innovation centres Beacon farms that are just starting up now. And of course, we run Leafmark certification, which uh, is, you know, proving we've, we, Waitrose and Marks and Spencers have been big supporters over the years. And now Tesco uh, have said all their UK fresh produce will be Leafmark certified by the end of this year and globally by the end of 2024. And for Lidl, all their UK produce by the end of 2023. So we're seeing huge growth both in the marketplace but also in the desire for farmers to ensure that they are getting it right in how we combat climate change. It, one of the premises for holding this particular session is uh, there is no doubt is there that um, young people are very much more engaged in the environment these days than they were perhaps even 10, 15 years ago. One of the um, initiatives I see that you run is a, is a food farming and natural environment school of the year. Interestingly, I see a school in Manchester actually won the last year. Mm. Do, do you take any lessons from the, the, your experiences of teaching the environment to young children? Do they get particularly engaged with it? Oh, they love it. I mean, the great thing about agriculture, it touches all five senses. So it gives a learning uh, experience for all learning needs and all learning types. So from that point of view, hugely, hugely engaging. And so many people are not in the privileged position that we are in the farming sort of world to actually get behind the story of farming and see all the wonders of what goes on. So it's been great. The leaf education team have run uh, this competition and uh, it's all been taking about, about taking the highest uh, academic ability. So that's been number one. Uh, 
uh, of 14 to 16 year olds. The prize is a weekend at Clavassi College, Agriculture College. It has to be about engaging and meaningful impact. You know, this is not a light touch marketing approach. This is something that's going to drive change. Oh, my goodness. You know, the response has been simply amazing uh, for the teachers as well who go along. I think one of the great successes, and we certainly hadn't expected this one coming, was over a third of the winners who have gone out. So these are several schools that, you know, compete, have now gone on to land-based agricultural colleges and universities. So, you know, tick, success. Uh, that's a great result. And obviously, we are in a changing landscape for the way farming operates in this country and, and new stuff and innovation is important. And uh, if I might actually link you here with with Charlie, Iagri had a conference and I thought one of the most entertaining and good news stories that came out of that came from Cornwall. Uh, it came from Chris Mann. And not to put find a point on it, um, he is able to... Um, uh, powering tractors with poo. So so all the methane coming out of cows, he was able to translate and actually come up with, uh, uh, with fuel-to-fuel tractors, methane tractors, and, and has done a deal with uh, with New Holland to carry that forward. A great feather in the cap for Cornwall, I guess, but, but one of those good news stories that probably doesn't get as much airing as it should do. I guess it's the challenge, isn't it? Because... There are so many messages that we receive every day from so many disciplines, whether it be policing, whether it be food, nutrition, uh, machinery, innovation, etc. So I think for us, what's really important is ensuring that these messages land at the appropriate time and to the appropriate audience. So for Open Farm Sunday, that services young families. So it will be grandparents and grandchildren or it'll be parents and children. Uh, it isn't about teenagers. And, and we've done a lot of work with teenagers and things like the, the, you know, the competition has been absolutely you know, fantastic for that. And then the other thing is, of course, making it relevant, making it relevant for teachers. Teachers are highly professional. They are incredibly busy. And so if you can make sure that the materials that will support their classes are relevant, curriculum focused, right age group, you know, you're on to a winner. And there again is our opportunity as farming. It's not about saying, oh, let's have a GCSE for agriculture. It's actually, let's make sure farming weaves its way into absolutely every single GCSE and A-level. And when they come through as well, the T-levels. Um, yeah. because, you know, we, we've got the perfect excuse, you know, whether it be Absolutely. biology, physics, chemistry, right through to mass, French history, you know, agriculture's there all the time. Charlie, although you are the Institute of Agricultural Engineers, you've got, it's such a broad church, and you've got soil scientists uh, rubbing shoulders with engineers, rubbing shoulders with um, people in the grounds care industry, horticultural, forestry. Um, do you find it's one of the benefits of having this broad church that they can learn off each other, although they've got different responsibilities? Yeah, I think it, absolutely. Um, I, I think it translates from agriculture itself. I think you know, farmers by nature are very can-do people. Um, they have to perform many roles. You know, they have to be vets, accountants, mechanics, uh, economists, all sorts of things. And I think that's traditionally 
you know, where people who have gone into agricultural engineering have tended to come from agriculture. So that's kind of gone into the discipline to become a very much a jack of all trades. Yeah, if you if you look at the discipline, it's got soil scientists, environmentalists, and you know, we describe it as a convergence of lots of engineering disciplines. Um, you know, whether you're electrical, environmental, civil. You know, and the, and the thing we often say internally is that everyone is an agricultural engineer. They just haven't realised it. That, that, that common theme in IAGRI, or the aim in IAGRI, has always been and the output of agriculture is, and farming doesn't happen without it. So, you know, as we move forwards, food security, sustainability and the climate are really at the forefront. So we need more people to get involved in engineering. Marion, if I can come on to you just a moment. Just, just tell me a little bit about your job. How, how did you originally get into the, the job you're doing now? What, what route did you take into the, the role with Seven Trent? Uh, well, originally I was a head of geography in a secondary school, so I was quite interested in what Caroline was saying. <laughs> um, and I did um, a master's in uh, food security in a changing environment, and I came in that way, working with um, Seven Trent. So obviously um, when we work with the farmers, to uh, reduce pesticide uh, pollution from pesticides, either point source pollution or diffuse pollution. Are, mo- are farmers mostly receptive to your visit to, to a farm? I mean, you talked about money just now, and obviously that's a, that's a big pool, but uh, generally do they welcome the advice that you give and your visit and so on? Yeah, um, so we, we have um, opportunities, funding opportunities uh, from the water company. So um, Seven Trent uh, pr- provide money um, for us. Sorry, there's an awful lot of noise behind me. We just, uh, yeah. So what our team do is we reduce the pollution in the rivers and that contributes to the uh, river environment, its habitats for uh, wildlife and native plants. Um, but you see, at the same time, Seven Trent will work with the farmers to improve water quality. But what we're trying to do is also create financial savings for other customers so by reducing the costs at water treatment plants through catchment management sometimes it can be as much as 20 pounds saving for every pound spent in catchment so they you know there is um a financial incentive for for seven trent and other water companies to have good catchment management but it also then that money can then be read fed back through either as you know savings on customer bills but it can also go towards things like our green recovery project so we have at the moment that stands at 566 million pounds um, for making improvements to uh, wastewater um, treatment plants. So that all the, the news about uh, sewage outflows and so forth, all of that is being improved all the time. I mean, Seven Trent itself, we've got what uh, 6,800 kilometres of rivers and we've actually committed by 2025 to improving 4,000 kilometres of them that will be complete by 2025 so even though we don't own the rivers we do work really really hard to make those improvements. There has I've seen recently some press and tv coverage about pollutions in rivers for particularly people who want to go wild swimming and and so on um, how much does agricultural uh, impact um, have on, on water quality? Everybody is responsible we don't uh, seven trent don't own the rivers Farmers don't own the rivers. Everybody's responsible for cleaner rivers. And we have to spend our time educating, um, let's say, educating domestic customers even for the use of wipes and um, sanitary products that end up in the rivers. So the reduction and things like that and where the, you know, beer binner, not a blocker, uh, fats and oils. We also have to 
um, work with the farmers um, on optimal um, spray windows to make sure that people understand about um, spray drift, different types of nozzles, volatilization of sprays. If it's, it looks like a beautiful, hot, sunny, clear day, but actually the spray can then just drift off into the, into the atmosphere and then come down when it, when it feels like it. So there's a huge amount of, as, as Charlie was saying as well, about the engineering side of things that we have to know and understand and then be able to communicate and engage that back to um, the farmers. In terms of how much, I'm sure it's quantified the amount that, yeah. that there is from the agricultural sector, um, but we're playing our part in making sure that there's there's reductions from every sector because we need clean clean rivers. There's, there's no way around that, and uh, it's something that we all have to be uh, committed to creating is that higher uh, and, water quality and, and does the weather play a particular part in your sort of day-to-day activity i don't mean getting wet when you go out but 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 generally <laughs> excess rain and rainfall in in the areas that you cover well it, it affects anything that affects farming practices affects um what ends up in the river yeah so heavy rainfall the result is high runoff you could have something like um high winds or even medium winds you get increased spray drift um all of those things contribute to um to our problems we work quite uh, quite extensively with um with farmers discussing our, what sort of uh, weather apps they use what they have access to we were putting in weather stations a few years ago to increase and improve coverage in in rural areas well thanks uh, just a moment and uh, come back to you in a minute uh, chris You've talked about your business. Do you find that the uptake of non-fossil fuel mowers, shall I say, at the moment, is it being driven by local authorities and sports clubs who are committed to an environmental strategy themselves, whether it's a sports club or a local authority? Yeah, I think that's very much the first place, the, the first people to embrace this kind of thing. Certainly, um, the local authorities have very much got an agenda to promote that, and 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 they seem to be, be able to attract some additional funding to for that type of products. And certainly, with the the higher end sports clubs, are very they're very much focused around um, looking at their impact on the environment, minimising not only just emissions but also minimising noise and, and other things. And and I think in terms of the environmental standards, some of those are signed up to they're obliged to bring their co2 impact um, usage down year on year so they start once you've done the big easy things it starts to become more and more difficult challenges to do it so you've got to look at things like mowers and other things in order to make a uh, make an impact in what they're doing there is one area of, um, of of battery mowers of course which seems to be uh, overlooked at the moment and uh, uh, that is the the safe disposal of spent batteries. Is that ever raised as, as an issue? Um, I guess people don't think of it right at the outset when they're buying these mowers, but it will be a, or could be a problem um, in going down the line. Yeah, I think it. I think it. It hasn't really raised itself as an issue now. I mean, we we've obviously got in in, in place um, processes to, to 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 take back and re- and put through recycling some of the the batteries that we have. But the smaller ones that are currently there at the moment aren't that attractive to reuse i think as as things move forward and certainly as i think we see in the car industry that people look at maybe recycling those batteries into more being able to actually use them for second in second life in terms of storing uh you know solar power that's that's gained when a when a business is closed so it can be reused at another time 
Yeah. And, and, and do you find that you have changed your messaging over time? I mean, you, you've done you've done work, environmental work within your business. You've also are selling more environmentally friendly machines. Um, is this very much a message that you're carrying forward to your customers? Yeah, we're certainly trying to carry it forward to our customers and we're trying to carry it forward too in terms of what we're trying to do in, from a recruitment point of view with uh, local schools and trying to engage in, in, engage with with. Uh, explain what um, you know what we are as a business and what uh, and what our industry can offer to to, to younger people and I, I think it's often you know our industry is often not disregarded not not seen in it's not seen as something as exciting and and, and largely our depots operate on the, our, our depots aren't very rural in in terms of location so there's there's not really an understanding from the sort of semi-urban sub- suburban population as to what we, what we do and what we're about so um, it's very much for us trying to en- engage with customers, engage with potential um, recruits when there's skills about where we, you know, what we are doing and what what we try and do in terms of our own minimising our impact on the environment and how and how, you know, joining a business like ours, they can come on that journey with us and help and en- and engage them and our existing team in in ideas because it's very much about getting everybody involved in it, focusing the whole team on on getting ideas from everybody about how we can minimize our impact and and then promote that more generally to our customers excellent um charlie if i can briefly come back to you just a moment um you, you spent much of your career in engineering with jcb um jcb uh, seemed to be leading the way in terms of, of fueling their uh, products with hydrogen now that's the message that is coming through uh, when you were there was this question of what fuel to use um high on your agenda yeah it was uh, certainly in the last few years i mean I, when i left jcb um the hydrogen engine wasn't uh, it was certainly heavily discussed but they hadn't built anything um so you know, during my last few years there, we were looking really heavily at electric-powered machines, uh, and there was a number of machines went into production uh, at my time. But I think, you know, as JCB will say, that electric really does lend itself to the smaller machines. Uh, I think, you know, small world loaders, small telehandlers, small dump trucks, anything that's small with a quite a low-duty cycle, works really well with electric uh, but what you know what came out of that that work was really you know we need a different solution for large machines and, and we were all sick to death of the automotive industry saying electric is the future for everything because it clearly wasn't for our industry no um you know anything more than about four or five ton you're going to struggle with with batteries or anything like a tractor that sits in a field at full power for 14 hours a day is not going to run on batteries, not yet anyway. Uh, so there was some real head scratching going on. And we we uh, we we prototyped a couple of large machines with batteries and it was just phenomenally expensive. And, and at the time, you know, a kilowatt of battery power was going to cost in the region about 500 pounds. So you can imagine taking a 20 kilowatt engine out and putting 20 kilowatts of batteries in. It was a massive price hike. So, you know, the economics of it just did not work. And, and even the electric machines that are available today are phenomenally expensive to manufacture. It was, it, it, you know, it needed a different solution. So hydrogen was certainly being discussed in my time there, and it's great to see them create it. Um, what reminded me with New Holland, Case New Holland's venture with the methane, 
is that New Holland, and I'd, I'd forgotten till I was talking with Alistair at our conference, that New Holland built a hydrogen tractor, you know, 10 plus years ago. But that was very much a hydrogen fuel cell machine, um, so quite different. But, uh, yeah, hydrogen does seem a feasible option. and there, there is a number of companies working on that at the moment, hydrogen combustion. So it'll be interesting to see, really, in the next, next few years where that goes. Indeed. And you as an institution have signed up, uh, I guess, under the Society for the Environment, uh, to, uh, a pledge to uh, achieve net zero in, uh, I think, 2050, isn't it? Um, is that something that the industry itself could, ad- could adopt, do you think? Well, I suppose, yeah, definitely. I mean, that's sort of what's, what's going on at the moment, really. I think it needs to be before, doesn't it? I mean, we've, we've all got that responsibility. Yes. Um, yeah. We have to change, and we are changing. I think wherever you look, there are people and businesses working on improving the issue. It's just not happening quick enough. And then you, you mentioned 2050. That just seems forever away, doesn't it? I mean, <laughs> when, when, I, when I started in JCB in the late 90s, you know, one of my early tasks, updating engines for emissions. So the, that, that journey on engine emissions started in, in the mid-90s. You know, and, and our first you know, tier one for the USA in stage one for Europe, that was back in 1997, 98 on machines that are 100 horsepower. So we were starting that back then, and that that was purely for reducing gaseous emissions in engines for the environment. And here we are, 20 or 30 years later, why why has this not started earlier? It it should have been at the top of the agenda years ago, shouldn't it? And it's great to see companies like CNH with the methane tractor actually in production now. Sure, I mean, that sure. is incredible, you know, um, and it'd be interesting to see where it goes. Um, Caroline, you you were at COP26, I've just gone from my memory now, um, and all the talk is of net zero by 2030, 2040, 2050, you pick whatever you like. Um, how much of a balancing act is it at the moment between, shall we call the uh, greening agenda and the ability for the country to uh, produce food? I think I'm right in saying that we're, uh, they reckon that we are 64% um, self-sufficient in indigenous food. Does that sound about right? Uh, and yet a few years ago, it was up to 78%. And bearing in mind all the pressures on imported uh, goods and fuels and goodness knows what, it surely is in our interest to uh, be as self-sufficient as we possibly can. Uh, The reality is that, um, yes, I mean, at COP, the the targets that were set actually had been set at the Paris Accord um, at the previous COP. Uh, And the big thing was around coal-fired, coal-powered units and things like that which you know there was some movement there that's going to be important you know this is ultimately about stopping digging fossil fuels out of the ground whether that's for fuel or whether that is for things like cement and 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 other sort of ways which are basically you know we just want to be improving our soil structure we want to be finding ways where we can have smarter machinery smarter batteries because I think our battery, you know, there are new designs of, I'm, I'm not an expert on batteries, but there are certainly quite a lot of new, very innovative designs on batteries coming forwards, which if we could crack would mean that weight, that means you can't get the grunt in the field from your tractor that's doing 14 hours of cultivations, is is what we need. So I think 
the ambition was certainly there. Um, I think one of the big challenges in all of this is we've started to move down the focus so much on carbon uh, as a proxy for mitigating against climate change that we've lost sort of vision of some of the other things that are going to be really important. And that's where nature is incredibly important. Nature-based solutions, nature-inspired, nature-derived solutions, and that balance with technology-driven solutions as well is something that's incredibly... You know, we, we take so many ideas from nature and you know all of Marion's work will be around if we can get nature working hard here we're not going to get the flooding we're not going to get the runoff of the soil into the waters we will actually have better resilience within the water to fight some of these challenges as well and with climate change you know going to your question on production you know we're very traditional about what we produce and we have become increasingly specialised in the areas where we produce that food. So we've lost the infrastructure to support it. You know, we have three or four canning factories in Spain. They'll have 622. Our freezing uh, units uh, where we could be freezing a lot more produce to stretch the life is, is again, you know, we still kind of see all frozen food. It's a bit second rate, you know, and it isn't. It's amazing. And so if we could drive some of the engineering and the initiatives in all of this infrastructure, it's going to be really important and start recognising, you know, that with climate change will become a very different spectrum of pests and diseases, of uh, intensity of rainfall and drought and sunshine hours and all those challenges and with that will become our capability to, to select far, um, crop species and adapt crop species to meet those requirements is going to get, again, really important. So we've got, it's like, I guess it's like your pistons, isn't it, in your engines and everything. It's all about, we've got multi changes going on. And that's why for us, integrated farm management has been such a strong framework because you've got that balance of if you make a change over here the Germans used to call it it's like a spider's web you know if you pull one part on the spider's web the rest kind of goes wiggle 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 and I think that's you know that's the challenge within the farming community. Well there is an awful lot of in, uh, innovation going on at the moment in, in food production at Lincoln and other places and and, and so on. Uh, Marion you you were a teacher, you say. Um, when you talk to people, uh, young people today, um, how do you talk about your job? Is, is it something that appeals to people? Do they do they recognise that that the, the role that you're doing? Uh, definitely, I I think I'm I'm the person in Seven Trent who has more people come out with me. We call it dialogues or day in the life of more people come out with me, and I have to say, spring is the most popular time due to uh, lambs, I think. So, um, yeah, I have loads and loads of people want, want to come out and want to see and understand. I, I found that from being a teacher, this role, it, it didn't, I didn't even realise it existed. You know, the fact that we treat, obviously we treat production of fresh water the same as you would treat a food processing plant. So that sort of levels of hygiene um, and then having us going on to farms and to to um, discuss with farmers, I didn't I didn't even know the job existed when I was still teaching. And then I saw this role, and uh, myself and another 
another geography teacher sat there looking at it going that would be really interesting wouldn't it and then we were like oh actually I might I might go for that and see see what happens and you know you you go from a teaching environment to um it, it's very very similar there's a lot of things that I do um in terms of things like engagement that w- worked in schools um things like the production of materials to give to farmers making sure everything's accessible making sure that things like education uh, rural wi-fi that there aren't uh, blockers to um access for our schemes um and the farmers going into you know obviously not during covid but uh, now to sort of you go into people's homes and sit and have a chat with them you there's um a lot of a personal side as well you know because they sometimes uh, people are, are lonely you know there's a lot of loneliness in in uh, rural communities and they just want to have somebody sit and have a chat have a cup of tea and listen to them you know, to what their problems are. Sometimes I can help. Sometimes I can signpost. Um, sometimes I can only listen. But I really, yeah, the, the the farmers are definitely what makes my job amazing. Yeah, and, and can you go schools and tell them how great it is? Yeah, sure. And and, and indeed, and can your enthusiasm rub off on on young people? Do you think? Ah, uh, well, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm, I'm hoping to start working with um, uh, young farming. Um, young farming groups so to um sort of go and have a chat with them and to see how um because i i think given the job that i do and how much i love it i'll probably be doing it for 30 years so then you're like well you could be working with different generations aren't you so um yeah as the young people come through to be talking to to uh, it's already happening i talk to farmers and their their children and so forth yeah yes sorry caroline yeah i mean i just wanted to add you know just how important this is so uh, we work with Tom Martin, um, Farmer Tom, uh, on farmer time. And there are now over sort of 870 schools paired up with farmers. And once a week, once a fortnight, the farmer will go into the school, but through the phone, onto the whiteboard and and talk with the teachers and the young people. And it is so inspiring. And originally, you know, the question started off being, oh, what's the name of your dog and things like that. But now, you know, really nuanced questions and really deep thinking. And they love it. And, you know, some teachers say, well, you know, if if you're naughty this week, we're not getting, you know, we're not going to go and see Farmer Tom. Um, and so all of those engagements just about everybody within not only just farmers but with the associated uh, industry like you know where marion and myself and and chris and, and charlie all work are so key and so powerful engaging young people to be inspired yeah. by you know a career opportunity or even just a little bit more knowledge about how their food is produced indeed uh, chris um we're coming to the end but um Golf courses often get a, a bad press, but uh, in my experience, a lot of them are really good at putting across an environmental message. Uh, do you get that feeling? Because um, not that I go to many golf courses, uh, but a lot of them have adopted uh, signage and advice to, because obviously they're me- meandering through quite a large acreage of, of, of wildish land sometimes. Um, do, do you find that the golf courses are getting more environmentally uh, sensitive and aware? I think so. I think certainly we've seen that with a number of our customers that they're, you know, looking at creating areas that maybe don't need, you know, 
some of the rough they don't put it quite as lot as, as low as they used to do they create some some wildflower and another and what and habitat area for, for for wildlife that doesn't and 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 try and certainly work with the with the with the landscape and the environment that they're in rather than necessarily removing removing something just for the for the sake of the to make the the course easier or better for a you know for the members but, but some of them are very good at actually communicating what they're doing. And obviously mm. this is very useful for, for, for players, for the general public as they're mm. going around to, to actually be educated about why they're doing certain uh, work within the course. Yeah, that's, that's right. And I, and I know one or two certainly get, get local schools in to show them, to show them that and see, and see the environment and encourage that as well as, as well as obviously trying to recruit new members to try and just explain what they're trying to do in terms of the, for, for the benefit of the environment. And well, look, there's so much more we can talk about on this. I'd just like to ask uh, a final uh, question and, and view, a very short one. It concerns sort of two people, Jeremy Clarkson uh, versus Ed Sheeran. Jeremy Clarkson of uh, fame of, of his particular farm and Ed Sheeran who uh, flies all around the world and wants to uh, rewild everything. Who is the villain? Who's the hero? It, both have got a message to tell, uh, Caroline. I think the farmers are the heroes and those celebrities will come and go and raise the profile or raise the issues. But the real the real heroes at the end of the day are the farmers. And I think uh, Mr. Clarkson got a Farming Hero Award. It for, is, yes. yes. And he certainly has done a lot in, in raising awareness of, of the real farmers, which some farming programmes actually uh, gloss over. So he's not afraid to to, to take it right right to the market and, and so on. Uh, Charlie, I think I've asked you this before, but uh, I, don't know, I know your answer, but uh, uh, hero or villain, Chuck Clarkson? Um, well, I was I, I was going to start with Ed Sheeran, to be honest, because I think what I, I'm very dubious about that. The answer is not just to plaster the countryside with trees, is it? Yeah, yeah Clarkson, I don't know. He, I think it was brilliant because it... It raised lots of issues about agriculture. There was a, there was obviously a comedy side of it, which was great if you like Clarks and and all that side. But there was a serious thing there as well, wasn't there, about him trying to make some money and the different ventures he had and the disasters. And that's the day to day life in farming, isn't it? And the impact of weather and goodness knows what. It's a gamble. And <laughs> a lot of the gambling is the weather, you know. Marion, what do you what do you think? Well, I, I think that you could say he's a hero for raising awareness. So. I think he made a bit of a mess of his wetland, which I was, <laughs> in terms of your environmental things. Well, you got you talking <laughs> about it. Yeah, absolutely. Great, great. And Chris, have you got a view on that? Uh, well, I think I think as far as Clarkson is concerned, he did, a, he, as everybody said, he did a great job of raising the profile of of, of the work of, of the farmer and the challenges that they face in a in a in a comical and humorous way that I think probably connected more with, you know, an urban population that don't generally that don't think about where the food's coming coming from. Indeed. Well look, um, might I wrap it up here and and thank you all very, very much for your participation. I'm not sure that we have come to a, a conclusion, except Perhaps there is a lot to do, and I think the f facilities and, and, and the will is there. It's going to take time. A lot of people will try and convince us that we haven't got much time, but I, I think all of you are involved in a very uh, interesting and valuable part of this industry. My thanks then to Caroline, Charlie, Marion and Chris for their insight into the challenges and opportunities faced by the agriturf engineering sector at a time when environmental issues often lead the news agenda. There are reports of councils and even schools banning meat products, but I was struck by Caroline Drummond's remark 
books about the schools who participate in the LEAF Organised Food, Farming and Environment annual competition, who then see a very large number of pupils choose to go on to rural industries further education. So to paraphrase a former Prime Minister, for our sector it's certainly education, education, education. So I'm Chris Biddle, thank you for joining me, and remember to press subscribe to make sure you do not miss a single episode of Inside Agriturf. Thank you.